And welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Gavin started off with uh, a little bit of Shooter McGavin, which uh, had me laughing. So uh, he's, he's ready for Hollywood. Hollywood uh, is going to come knocking any day now. You're going to be hosting your own talk show. Uh, you and Drew Barrymore, the only two working during the uh, writer's strike. There you go. Yeah. Well, I'm ready. As you see, I got the I got the school board behind me. Got nice. all the proper notes for Martial Arts Mania podcast up. Love it. Kickboxing. Oh. Samo, Jackie. Oh. Yumbiao. The Holy Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Kickboxing. And then the Holy Trinity, you're good to go. You know martial arts cinema like the back yes. of your hand now. Although I will say that my moving around, it seems to have like blasted the background. So I'm going to stop moving. All right. There you go. Calm, serenity. Hmm. Namaste. So how are you today, good sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I can't complain. Same old, same old. Uh, Fresno's Fresno. It's, it's cooling down a little bit. Still in the 90s, but... Uh, you know, so hopefully here within the next month, we'll be into like 70s, 80s weather, maybe, which would be nice. Uh, the temperature, not the decades. Not that that would really make a difference. Maybe it would, depending uh, on your Well, 70, 70s would have a lot of smog. Oh, yeah. Free catalytic converters. There you go. Good call. Good call. So we don't want that. No to smog. Uh, and, and- and uh, the training is going well? Training's going well, yeah. So today's my first day switching back to morning conditioning, evening Muay Thai. So I'm getting that little bit of afternoon uh, drag right now. And then I don't train again for another three hours. So and uh, when we're done recording, that's when I'll sit down, uh, drink some more liquids, eat a protein bar, and then be good for evening training. So uh, yeah, but otherwise training's good. Everything's good. Uh Anything new with you, dog? I went to the New Beverly last night. Oh. I asked wait. for tickets to uh, Supercop. They gave me tickets to Legally Blonde. Ah. Because that's what they were showing. I figured this much. Uh, yeah. But did you actually ask for- Yeah, uh, I did. I did. Oh, nice. Good and job. And the guy chuckled. Yeah. So. Uh, but I'm assuming you went with Emily to see Legally Blonde. Uh, yes. We saw Legally Blonde and 10 Things I Hate About You with- Ooh. which is And the screenwriters were there. And I, did, I, you know, I realized that with the strikes going on, a lot of- uh, People who might normally be working mm-hmm. are available to come by and right. talk. So uh, I'm definitely going to keep that in mind for the next few films that uh, appeal to me on the calendar, and just go out and see if someone's there to give a chat. There were definitely uh, there were definitely SAG AFTRA folk and WGA folk in the audience, and some film editors as well. So it was a very it was a lot like our knockoff uh, screening. Uh. Very receptive audience. Cool. You know, those are both great films. Uh, I I definitely like Legally Blonde, the first one. I don't really remember the second one. But 10 Things I Hate About You is a classic. And I mean, that came out when, uh, was it 99, maybe? Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, so I was in I was in junior high at that time, right? So same thing, it's around that age, where I was around that age. I would have been like the younger students in there, right? Like, you know, the younger sibling or something. And so there's a lot of nostalgia factor for those movies, like that one and Can't Hardly Wait uh, yeah. is another yeah. one, which anytime I see that just takes me back to the 90s. Like once again, the the setting for their, you know, last day of high school, I was, you know, in junior high, but still. Uh, so cool. Glad that went well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any that we're going to be attending this month. But I don't think so. I, I, I know that Street Fighter is a midnight screening. Jean-Claude Van Damme Street Fighter. I might go, but midnight screenings... I can't handle, can't handle, yeah. man. Uh, it's funny, good friend of the podcast, Tiger, reached out to me. And he's like, oh, if I'm in town, you should drive down and go to this. I'm like, first of all, it's the drive, right? Yep, totally worth it for these movies. But I said, but it's the midnight screenings I don't do. I just can't do them. Even, even in college. Uh, so I recently went and saw the 50th anniversary screening of Enter the Dragon. A lot of fun. Uh, I also just went and saw They Live last week. So Fandom Events is on point recently. Uh, I always love watching classic cinema uh, in the theater, but I bring that up because the first time I saw Enter the Dragon was a midnight screening in college and uh, in Santa Cruz. And my roommate, Berto, who worked downtown, uh, he was a manager at this Italian restaurant, saw the poster for whatever, because I had no idea. Uh, this was kind of pre 
social media, this one like Facebook was still only for college students. It wasn't the same thing, right? It's not like it was mm-hmm. you had a smartphone where you were constantly getting updates. So anywho, he saw like the poster for it and he's like, you want to go? I was like, hell yeah. So, you know, we went to his restaurant after he got off work and then, you know, we had dinner, we had some beers, we're like, oh, this could be awesome. And even then at like 21 years old, I remember just getting in the theater and I love Into the Dragons, like my favorite movie. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm already falling asleep. Oh, oh. So... You know, 15 years later, I'm not really any better at watching midnight screenings. Well, I, 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 my my experience with midnight screenings are a little different. I think my first one was Killbots or Chopping Mall. My mother was in town. We went and checked that out. And uh, midnight movies were were a part of my life for a few years, almost at least once or twice a week for a good period of time when I lived closer to the New Beverly. But... I will say that there have been times where I've dozed off and uh, like my head will be sideways and then I'll wake up and I realize I'm dozed off and then I'll just like try to play it off like, oh yeah, I'm just watching the movie this way to get a different angle. (laughs) Because you know, your brain doesn't always completely work at 1.40 a.m. after a long day and you're like trying to think, yeah, nobody's going to realize I fell asleep, but you know. Well, we've mentioned it before that even on our normal double Kung Fu movie screenings, there's been a few where we've struggled, where we've done- The head nod. (laughs) Yes. Or the notorious after one of my fights where you, me, and my friend Aaron went out for pizza and then went back to the apartment to watch uh, uh, Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, Mm -hmm. The ladies were all out of town. We're like, yeah, guy's night. Yeah. AJ just won his fight. Yeah. We drink some beers. Yeah. We went and picked up some more beers. Go back to the house. We each had like a half a beer. Next thing I know, by the end of the movie, I look over, you two are. (laughs) And I was pretty much like, you wussies. Can't even... Stay awake. So we're we're not exactly the greatest. Uh, and plus, I think it also depends on like your lifestyle. I'm very regimented. I go to bed super early and I wake up super early or I sleep in, but I always go to bed early. So that's just mm-hmm. kind of a consistent thing for me. But anywho, enough talk about that. Uh, any martial arts movie news? Once again, everything's kind of on a standstill right now because of uh, the strikes and uh, it's it's real interesting getting the perspective uh, of some of you know the SAG members and this and that. It's like rumor has it this this thing may be going on for a long time. And uh, Warner Brothers just released a statement about how they're losing a ton of money. Uh, there's been a lot of projects or TV shows that have just been canceled pretty much that we're expecting to do follow up seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yep, sorry, it's you know it, it sucks for the shows that came out like. Uh, maybe what would be six months ago, maybe a year ago, and we're supposed to start shooting like right now. I feel like the shows that got released this summer, their new seasons, and even right now into the fall, they might be okay because their scheduled shooting season for the next follow-up season will probably be around when the strikes end. But there's certain shows that just got screwed over or obviously the movies that were in mid-production. But yeah, some of these TV shows, I'm kind of like, oof, what's going to happen? And even just some of the shows that may have been hanging on by a thread and you know, it's word of mouth and publicity from the stars and they couldn't do anything about it. So that actually can also hurt them as well. So I think a show, for example, like only murders in the building, which Jessica and I love to watch, which uh, just premiered a few weeks ago, it's newest season. That one I think is fine. It can ride on its coattails of its own merits and stuff. Right. But then another one of our favorite shows warrior on max, you know, maybe that, that one is really kind of hinging on the, publicity from the stars and so forth and yep. you know it sucks they can't do any sort of promotion for it uh, I, I know it, it's it's gonna feel just as uh weird um going back to the movies with new waiting for those new films to come out i know i know there's probably some delays and everything with some films so that so that there is content still hitting the theaters. But at some point, there is going to be a gap, whether yeah. it's after the strike or before the strike. There's going to be a gap, and it's just going to be like uh, after the the COVID lockdown. And I remember, you know, going to see, I, I forget what my first film was. I feel like it may have been Mortal Kombat. It, it was around that time. Our first yeah. one was Nobody, which came out like a month before. Yes. And it was so weird. We're like in the theater with our masks on, spaced out from everybody. We're like, don't even think about sitting next to us. You know, obviously you pick your tickets in advance, but you're still paranoid. Like, what, what? But, uh, and then Mortal Kombat was shortly thereafter that. But, uh, yeah, it's, and it's, so, it probably sucks for movie theaters, you know, the chains and the companies just as they're getting back into the groove. And then it's like, eh, we're going to get hit hard again. So, 
It is what it is, my friend. Well, I don't have any movie news, but I do have a movie quote for you. Hit me, brother. What's up? Okay, it's a little long. Okay. But here we go. Okay. Medically, you're a very fit young woman. No evidence of any abnormality in the brain. No tumor. You have a strong heart. Your diet is better than average. You are under severe stress, of course, but otherwise, Dr. Bowen, the psychiatrist you saw, said there's nothing out of the ordinary. Aside from your exceptional extrasensory perception and your preoccupation with Japanese culture, no harm in that. Sworn to justice? No. Okay. Uh, Ninja 3, domination. Was never going to guess it. Makes sense, though, because that's what threw me off at the end. I was like, all right, this has got to be sworn to justice. When you said the preoccupation with Japanese <laughs> culture, I'm like, okay, no, but I'm still going to guess it. Ninja 3, the domination. Uh, there you what go. What a film. Indeed. One of the great cult classics of all time. I'd imagine there was a lot of people doing a lot of nose candy that said, hey, how can we combine every popular genre of the 80s on a minimal budget? And still make a crap ton of money. Let's combine ninjas, horror, exorcism. Yeah, show Kazugi. <laughs> and that's uh, Ninja, 3, Ninja 3 The Domination. If you haven't seen it, check that one out. It's a lot of fun. That's the kind of one I would go see at the New Beverly just because it would be insane. Yes. And I would stay up for a midnight film for that. I would try my best. I would try my best. It, it would all depend on like what's going on, what I'm getting ready for, you know. Uh, but yeah. But hey, great quote. I love it. And uh, kind of, I guess. Kind of. With today's. The, the kind of over the top, culture. a little bit of cross-cultural filmmaking. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. A little. Like Van Damme, but we'll go with it. Anywho, are you ready to talk about our movie we're talking about today? You better believe it. We are talking about the 1986 Hong Kong action classic, truly classic, Royal Warriors, starring the one and only Michelle Yeoh and Haruyuki Sonata, as well as Michael Wong, released by DNB Films in 1986. So, Royal Warriors, uh, really, truly a classic. I know we say classic a lot, but we tr we try to review classic films a lot of the time especially to give our viewers recommendations maybe once they haven't seen but royal warriors is truly one of those action films where if you took it and released it today as a new movie it would still be mind-blowing and probably successful it's it's sometimes in the library of michelle yo's work i i feel like it's kind of a forgotten one somehow not forgotten but just the casual fan probably hasn't even seen it you know, which is a, a darn shame because it's truly one of the hardest hitting, gritty, kinetic, high octane 80s action films there is. I mean, Hong yeah. Kong, US, wherever. Uh, I would actually go out on a, it's not even much of a limb to go out on to say that this is the greatest Hong Kong film that is not associated with Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Yuan Wuping, or Frankie Chan. Now, Sammo at this point, it may have still had a connection with DNB right. films. So, but I, pretty much, I, but, he's not listed as a producer or anything. Yeah, on or, there, and so. I should also say, or Corey Yoon, because this, this is, this is really, uh, when, when AJ talks about this being a classic film, this really stands uh out amongst amongst a sea of great films that were made in the 80s in hong kong and the fact that it's not necessarily affiliated like writing wrongs directed directed by you know core yoon uh we understand why it stands out despite its sort of independent feel to it this is almost a completely independent film from i mean i know it's dmb but it's completely independent from a lot of the names that made so much impact in the 80s now there are a lot of and the 90s there are, are a lot of names affiliated that and familiar faces throughout this film but when we talk about the the people who were the the standard bearers of that golden age of of cinema cinema uh this stands out without those names being affixed to it yeah excellent analysis and great points all around and i'd have to agree uh 
and of her original run of films. And and once again, Yes, Madam is an absolute classic, groundbreaking, and the finale of Yes, Madam can't be touched. But overall, as a film, as an action film, I feel like this is the strongest, maybe Michelle Yeoh's strongest solo outing ever. Uh, quite frankly, in of her original run of films, Magnificent Warriors, Yes, Madam. Uh, I mean, I, I love them all, but this is definitely the best. And as a gritty police procedural and revenge film, it it, it cuts no corners. It doesn't water itself down or dilute itself with wacky comedy. There's literally only one little kind of gimmicky like when she gets back from japan and her office welcomes her back like i mean there's like one little moment of that but otherwise it's played straightforward like uh, a western action film would be there's no wacky comedy bits in there i mean even yes madam had like the relationship with the the three thieves you know choi hark uh, john chum uh meng hoi uh, they had some comical moments in there and stuff but this one just go straight for that kind of dark, not evil feel, but there are elements even within the overall aesthetic that are kind of horror movie-esque even, you know, just very dark and gritty. And a lot of that uh, has to do with David Chung's direction, but also Johnny Toe being on yes. there as an assistant director for sure. Uh, and then you have, speaking of Meng Hoi, on there as the fight choreographer, because as Gavin mentioned, I mean, Corey Ewan was a lot of time associated with these films, but here we have Meng Hoi kind of, uh, stepping out on his own and being the lead chore choreographer, uh, working along with Ching Karlock uh, and a few others, but and just man creating an amazing showcase for the abilities of all of our performers, but particularly Michelle Yeoh and Haruyuki Sonata, uh, really letting them throw down. And the nice part is there, there's so many great action set pieces in this film. Not overloaded like some hong kong movies could even be which we usually love right but the the casual viewer can watch this film still get into the narrative love the action sequences but not be overwhelmed but the diehard action fan also has what would be uh let's see here like four really beautifully executed big action pieces right we have the opening uh well i, I mean not even counting the opening too so really it's kind of like you have what I would call three major action set pieces and two uh, smaller ones that I can think of. And then the chase scene as well. So really, if you do it overall, it's like six action set pieces in there that are just so phenomenal, uh, whether it's the fight scenes or the chase scene, which was done by Blackie Ko, the, the top dog of chase scenes in Hong Kong cinema at that time. So, yeah. No, uh, it's it's so well put together, um, and as you mentioned, like there there are there are some dark elements to the film, but it's contrasted so well with the like the neon lighting and the yeah. neon colors. So it it kind of captures what's so special about this film is it captures sort of the colors of say the the Lucky Stars, uh, the Lucky Stars films. And then it has the grittiness of the writing wrong film and even the no holds barred, like the story arc is going this way. We're not going to sugarcoat it and have a character survive because the audience wants him to survive. Right. There, there are, it encapsulates everything from the different films that were coming out around that time, but is just a great standalone film. I mean, I know that uh, David Chung spent a lot of time, the director spent a lot of time as a cinematographer before and after this film. Uh, and as I was like kind of diving into to his uh, filmography a little bit, it started to remind me uh, of uh, American filmmaker, Jan de Bont. Oh. Jan de Bont, right? So same, same, same sort of uh, filmography arc, doing cinematography and then shifting over to creating a some great classic action films like speed. Yes. Yeah, speed, yeah. I would put speed and Royal warriors sort of as these like placeholders in time as to this is how you do a, an action film that represents the eighties is how you do an action film that represents the nineties, but is also completely timeless. As you mentioned, you can watch it today and still be in awe 
not of what was done, but actually have your mind blown in places. And it, those are great comparisons, those two films, actually. I mean, just because the overall production value and how n- nothing is left to chance or not executed to the highest level. I mean, they, they think about every little thing, whether it's the cinematography, lighting, costumes, the cast, the music too, right? The music in Royal Warriors is so good and so fitting. And it's Romeo Diaz who did a lot of films from that mm-hmm. time. And so there's a little bit of borrowed music from Yes, Madam and some other projects, which was the norm back then. but just this awesome 80s synth uh, soundtrack where, you know, and you've also got this love theme that is played throughout. It's a love theme that then becomes like, it's it's at first you're like, oh, it's a happy-go-lucky love theme. It's associated with uh, reuniting of two loved ones. Then it suddenly becomes this love theme of lost love. Then it mm-hmm. becomes this final theme of paying tribute to the people we've lost. And so it's just this great connecting element throughout. Uh, and then in a film like Speed, that soundtrack was just awesome. The dun, 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 And sorry, that's a really bad uh, impersonation. I'm, I'm never going to make it into pentatonics. Sorry. Well, and, and you know, the, the, other, the other fantastic fact, factor of this film is we do have, we do have two great leads. Mm-hmm. And we have a great supporting actor and in Michael Wong, but we also have some tremendous villains who had a really good couple of years in Hong Kong cinema because eighty uh, six is Royal Warriors, and then eighty seven is Project A two. And right. these guys are in Project A two as well. And what I love is this, this great balance uh, between good and evil. Right, the good guys and the bad guys, but also within the good guy, like the good guy trio, our protagonist trio, there are different allegiances that exist, the different motivations that exist with them. And our antagonists are bad guys. They do bad things. And Mm -hmm. quite honestly, one of them, in hindsight, could have made our top 10 villain list, maybe even top five villain list. Yeah. However, they're also following a code and a bond that they form together. And so there's, we understand them despite their, you know, their actions. Right. And it should be said also, when you watch this film, it's kind of a, not a who's who of the stars of that era, but there's a ton of familiar faces, too many for us to even try to go through and name them all. If you watch the, uh, Blu-ray release with Frank Jang doing the audio commentary. He does a really good job of like picking up every person and giving you their quick background of like TVB actor here, you know, classic Hong Kong actress that started in the 50s here. And it's even tiny little parts. You know, you've got like Dennis Chan in there, right? From uh, yes. uh, Master Sion from Kickboxer is in there and all sorts of familiar faces. Uh, and as we mentioned before, like behind the camera too. So, and it's the Hong Kong film industry it's you know as big as it was back then in terms of output and its reach it was also small in terms of you know who you had working there so of course there's going to be overlap but let's get into talking about the basic premise of the film so royal warriors uh our lead uh michelle yo who plays michelle yip so they just call her i mean michelle i think most of the time uh i watched the classic english dub again but when i watch the audio commentary you hear the Cantonese. So, but I love the classic English dub. That's the uh, first version I had. So anyways, the basic plot premises, it starts off with Michelle Yeoh in Japan on vacation. She uh, thwarts a little Yakuza beat down. So we get a great opening action sequence with her. It's kind of the ones I was talking about. That's a little bit smaller, but still amazing. Uh, And really has no other relevance to the plot aside to establish the fact that she's starting off in Japan. It's from there that when she's on her flight back to Hong Kong, uh, she boards a plane that has her also has uh, Haruyuki Sonata, who in the English dub is just a police officer or detective. But I think in the original Cantonese, I saw the subtitles. He might actually be an Interpol agent. But anyways, he's on his way to Hong Kong, as is Michael Wong, who is uh, pretty much like a how would you call it? A, a sky agent? I think that's what he calls. He's like sky security or something. He's like, yeah, a, he, he's he's basically uh Wesley Snipes from Passenger 57. He's like an airline cop. And so the three of them are on a flight that uh, is also escorting a prisoner back to Hong Kong, played by the great Michael Chen Wai Man, uh, a 
genre favorite. Uh, look him up if you don't know much about him, but he is a very interesting figure. Grew up in the triads, then kind of, or in gang activity, then became a police officer, but then was too heavily involved in the triads, got kicked out of the cop, became a boxing champion in the early 70s. What, what rule set? I don't know exactly. There is footage of him fighting in the 80s, though, where he knocks out a Japanese opponent. So dude was legit. Did a bunch of martial arts movies through 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, new Bruce Lee, uh, a, a true legitimate badass, all tatted up in real life. Anywho, so they're escorting him back, and uh, he is then rescued, uh, or I should say rescued. Uh, one of his associates, played by Cam Hingian, uh, is on the plane, and they hijack it. They kill the officers escorting him, so then it's up to our trio uh, Michelle Yeoh, Haruki Sonata, and Michael Wong to take them down. They successfully do so. They save the plane. They don't save everybody, save everybody on there, though, because some people, unfortunately, get killed. But from that point on, there's two members left of this uh, group from Vietnam, uh, and they vow revenge against these three cops that thwarted the plans of their two blood brothers and got them killed. So the rest of the film sees these two criminals uh, one is named Bull or Raging Bull, and the other one actually isn't technically given a name. They just call him uh, Bandana sometimes, played by Ying Bai. Uh, and so the two of them uh, plot to get their revenge against our three protagonists. So that's the basic premise. Now, for you, when was the first time you saw this film? So the first time I saw this probably was when I was doing my deep dive in somewhere between 1999 and 2001 of the girls with guns subgenre. And I know that this does fall within that in some places on the oh, internet, yeah. but it, it's definitely, it definitely is. But at the same time, it really isn't. It is one of the most balanced, complete films period. So I hate to like throw it into a subgenre, but to answer your question more directly, somewhere between 1999 and 2001. Well, I think it it definitely it transcends the girls with guns subgenre. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but really, it's just an incredible action film that happens to have a female protagonist lead, right? But yeah. uh, it would definitely fall within that era. But for me, it, it's interesting. So it would have been around that same time. I had definitely seen it before. I saw Yes, Madam, and I picked up Yes, Madam in Chinatown in the summer of two thousand one. I remember because I had Cynthia Rothrock autograph it for me at Dragon Fest okay. 2001 <laughs> in November. So, and I had seen Royal Warriors before that. So therefore I saw it probably around 1999 or 2000. I had a Tai VHS copy of it mm -hmm. dubbed in English, classic English dub. But the interesting part was, and I was like, oh yeah, I must've ordered it from Suncoast Video. And then last night I just kind of had, not an epiphany, but I had a memory. I'm like, no, I bought it used from... I want to say Blockbuster. Now, okay. Hollywood Video is where I used to get all my Hong Kong movies. So it was one of those two, because those were the two rental places where my dad lived, uh, where my mom lived, the even smaller town. We just had the local video store. Ripping video. Uh, but yeah, and I remember I bought a used cop, because sometimes uh, for people that don't remember, uh, video rental places would sometimes sell older videos or if they had extra copies, you know, especially when a movie first comes out they ha they have a whole wall of them like Hollywood video. That was their whole shtick. It was guaranteed. You'd be able to rent it when it came out. They'd have like hundred, like a hundred copies on the wall. Uh, and then eventually, you know, they downsize and then eventually even more, they sell some. So I remember I bought it, but I want to say it was blockbuster for some reason that I bought it. So I had a VHS copy of it that unfortunately is no longer with us. It's got lost in the great VHS purge. But uh, it definitely not on purpose because I would have held on to that one for sure. But yeah, so I remember seeing it and just being like blown away, just, you know, mind blown. So incredible. It's the kind of it's one of those movies where like I invite people over and you can see my my Blu-ray shelf behind me with all stuff. I'll, I'll, if people are like, yeah, I want to watch a Kung Fu movie. Uh, not that I have people over all that often, but I'll be like, yeah, go ahead, pick whichever one. If even if I had just watched, like, let's say someone randomly showed up this weekend, sees Royal Warriors, and then says, oh, I want to watch Royal Warriors. I'd be like, let's watch it. I don't care if I watched it yesterday. I can watch yeah. that movie. It's just so well made, so well executed, such a nostalgia trip for me, the music, the action, everything else. So I have been a massive fan of this film for what would be, you know, 23, 24 years. Well, and you know, there, 
there's a massive rewatch blind spot for me for this film. Uh, because this is one of those movies that sit like you, I, I believe I'd watched, it was probably Tai Sang release rented from 2020 video over on, I think Burbank Boulevard, uh, right by, um, Canoga park on the way to Canoga park. Okay. Um, but I, I bring that up because it was one, it was one of those films that I liked so much that I was going to wait for it to be to to go on the big screen. Ooh. It's like sometimes you hold out for films to to rewatch on the big screen just so you can get that full impact. Uh, yeah. And I have not watched it on the big screen, so this is represents my second and third watching over the last two days in preparation for this video. So I I don't think I watched it anywhere between two thousand one and two thousand twenty three. It's it's interesting because I when you said that I had a uh, once again, I remember it because I had a long gap with this film too. So, you know, I watched it constantly in junior high, high school. Uh, and then when I went away to college, I, you know, obviously I kept a majority of my stuff at home. I lived close enough to home, and especially my sophomore year of college, uh, when I was able to park my car on campus, I went home a decent amount, probably on average, like once a month. And I would, uh, kind of, shake it up with what movies I would bring back a bunch of DVDs slash VHS, bring some new ones to school with me. Right. And so I maybe watched it a couple of times, but really I probably didn't watch it much from about 2005 when I went away to college. And then I moved to Asia in 2010. And it wasn't until I got to Shanghai where I was living in my little slummy apartment, uh, in an industrial building. It was like a textile, like building that had all these, like each floor was like a different kind of factory almost. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast. And then the the owner had turned one of the office spaces into some illegitimate dorm rooms because there was another university across the street. Sports university uh-huh. wasn't there. But anyways, it was right next to the Hong Kong football stadium. And so it's all I needed. I just needed a place to sleep because I was never home. I was training all day, working all night, and then I'd come home and sleep. But on Sundays, my one day off from everything, I would uh, walk the neighborhood near the Hong Kong football stadium, and I found one of the little DVD shops, as they called them. Now, these are not legitimate DVD sellers. As I said, I only really ever ran into one actual legitimate DVD store in a mall, like an actual brick and mortar mall, where and the price was about twice as much, still very cheap. But there's all these DVD shops throughout China. And once again, I, I left in 2016, things can be a lot different, but you find them like on the outsides of malls or on like kind of less legitimate malls, right? And so I found this little DVD shop and this guy actually had a bunch of old school martial arts films, which you didn't always find. Like me and my buddy Danny found a place in Foshan, China when I was living in the South that had a bunch and I got a bunch there. But this guy had a decent amount and I found a copy of Royal Warriors. And I was just so pumped because I was like, holy crap, I haven't seen this in like five or six years. And I remember just on my Sunday, I'd get some cheat meal food. There was this other place right around the corner that did these like waffle sandwiches where it was literally just like a waffle and like jam in the middle. Uh, not to be confused with like the Cantonese Hong Kong Gatsai uh, Bing, which is like the warm butter, peanut butter, sugar ones. This was okay. just literally like a waffle with jam in the middle. And I'd get like a bunch <laughs> of those because, you know, I was, once again, I didn't have the best diet, but I was also training nonstop. Go back to my uh, apartment, just watch some movies and chow down. And that was the life. So yeah, that was, uh, eventually that DVD got, it was, you know, it was a cheap knockoff one, got scratched a little and can no longer be used. But that's why I was so pumped when this new box set came out of in the line of duty films. Cause once again, Royal Warriors was released as in the line of duty one in some of its international titles. Uh, and then later, yes, madam, even though that came out first would have was released sometimes as in the line of duty two. I think there's even a version on Amazon prime right now, the in the line of duty two version, which takes, uh, like an opening scene from the owl versus no, not the owl versus bum, but where's officer tuba. Uh, and puts it in the beginning with David Chang and stuff. Really? So, yeah. Check I've it not out seen on Prime. that version. Yeah. In the line of duty too. It's a, it's a weird uh, international English release of it, but, and I still haven't watched the new yes, madam Blu-ray I have. So I don't know if it, it features that one. I'm sure it does that cut, but anywho. And then there was of course in the line of duty three in the line of duty four in the line of duty five. None of the films were technically related. I think the closest they got is Michelle Kahn's character may have had the same name in like three and four, but she, you know, 
it, it wasn't really the same character. But anywho, Royal Warriors. So we've laid down the basic plot premise. You know, these, these gang of blood brothers are now out for revenge. And we also have the struggling relationship between Haruyuki Sonata and his wife, who is living in Hong Kong. Not really explained kind of why. It was like they're separated. Uh, you know, she couldn't handle his police lifestyle anymore. So and he's pretty much announced he's going to give up being a police officer because he wants to reunite with her and his young daughter. You've got Michael Wong, who's immediately fascinated by Michelle Yeoh's character, and he's trying to woo her the entire time. So uh, after their successful takedown of the terrorists on the airplane, they all meet for dinner at the uh, Jumbo Restaurant, the now defunct, sunk in the bottom of the sea Jumbo Restaurant, which is one of my regrets is I never went there when I was in Hong Kong. And here's the deal, people, because I've mentioned this many a times, I've been to Hong Kong literally dozens and dozens of times. So I lived in the South, I, you know, I was going every weekend for a while. So and I love doing touristy type things. But for most of the time I went there, I was going there. I don't know how to explain it. Like I was experiencing Hong Kong in my own way. I was going and doing martial arts training most of the time. I'd go and eat at the restaurants I like to eat at. I would go and hang out. The, you know, I wasn't doing as much touristy stuff as I really should have. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm bummed. I missed out on uh, the Kung Fu Geniuses Kung Fu movie tour this summer. So I hope he does it again next summer because I'd really like to go with someone who just leaves me. Because there's a lot of iconic places that I shamefully haven't been in Hong Kong, but I never went to the Jumbo restaurant, never even thought about it. I was like, when I would go to Hong Kong, as I said, my priorities were hanging out with my best mate, Simon. Uh, we'd go to kickboxing, I'd go to the gym. And most of the time we ended up in Long Kwai Fong because at that point I was still, you know, we like to have our beers and party. So uh, also different time in my life. But yeah, so anyways, back to the plot of the movie. Uh, our group goes to the Jumbo restaurant. It kind of helps, you know, establish some plot elements. The very next day, uh, as they're getting ready to go to the airport, the wife and child of Haruyuki Sonata's character are blown to pieces. Literally, they're assassinated in an attempt of trying to assassinate his character by the Raging Bull uh, character, one of the Blood Brothers. And then so, obviously, now Haruyuki Sonata is out for revenge. They chase him down. We get a great car chase sequence as so choreographed it, by Blackie Co., which is yeah. really good. It, it is a phenomenal car chase sequence. That This isn't just... Uh, some a couple of the great slick moments it is it is uh powerful fast great turns i don't want to put it up at ronin caliber for uh the uh the frankenheimer film but it has elements that would make you wince watching this on the big screen and i will say it is nowhere compared to ronin but from hong kong standards it yeah, is it and- is about as close as you can get Right. And in the 80s, I feel like they were able to get away with a little bit more because even when you get to Thunderbolt with Jackie Chan in the 90s, there was so much restricting them in those. And they're super undercranked. And the the right little bit of undercranking in our fight scenes, we love, right? And even ones that are slightly uh, undercranked a little bit too much, like some of Donnie's work from that time, we still love. But car chases? No, you can't get away with that. And like even by the 90s, there's too many insurance uh, issues and even I just think development of Hong Kong made it a lot harder at this point like when you're watching the commentary with Frank Jang that's the beautiful thing about his commentaries as a guy that grew up in Hong Kong and even in that era he knows all these locations so he'll tell you oh they're going back and forth now they're out in the new territories that's where they're doing some of the bigger stunt work where the cars are flipping uh, crashing into each other then they go back to a more uh kind of established area like I think it was maybe it was Kowloon and you're like oh wow and you know it's more resi- there's more buildings and stuff then they cut back to being in an area that's a little more open where they can do some bigger stunt work but the thing is even in comparison to uh other films that had some car stunts and stuff in it like winners and sinners had that big you know car pile up and even that film had a lot of speeding up but a lot of that had to do with jackie being on roller skates and you know it being physically impossible for roller skates to travel at that speed probably without you know <laughs> uh but yeah, the the car chase is phenomenal, and it's up there as one of the best Hong Kong ones uh, you'll get to see. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, so. For example, in Wheels on Meals, you know, we get a great like car chase sequence, and even in Armor of God, both two that were shot in Europe, right? So yes. Jackie was very capable of being involved in Saving the Samo, like shooting these kind of scenes. Just in Hong Kong, 
it, it was sometimes too much of a hassle. So the fact that they were able to pull off such a great chase sequence with such big crashes and jumps and stunt work, like even it, it looks like Haruyuki Sonata jumping from his car as no, it's running to the other car. Like he is. And it, 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 it looks no, like I, I, I went, yeah, there, the way they shot that, it's definitely, he, uh, he really put in a, a great effort in this film. Yes. Uh, because that is him. I mean, obviously they they're probably going slower than appeared for that for that sequence where he's jumping from his car to the to the truck. But um yeah, it, it's like even when we're even when thinking about the Jackie Chan great car chase sequences from his careers from career from the eighties, a lot of it does have a little cannonball run esque aspect or feel to them. Yeah. A little, not a little comic booky, but just just on the just on the tinge there. I mean, particularly Wheels on Meals, Spartan X, but this one is like I said, it 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 isn't Ronin, but it, if you were watching this on the big screen, there there are moments where you're, you know, you're it, William Friedkin would be, I think, would enjoy watching this film. You know, rest in peace. You know, I can't speak can't speak how he would actually feel, but I'm just watching like the turns that they take. It's a very driven car chase scene. It's not gimmicky. Yeah, there are a few jumps. But these jumps are fueled by the rage that the that Sonata's character is experiencing, and it just seems like you know we we talk about the AJ and I talk about this all the time on on this podcast uh, in our previous ninety eight episodes. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. We're, we're, we're getting ready for that uh, that big one hundredth one coming up. Yes, so. we are. Yeah. So uh, we talk about this all the time that we love our films to have scripts that that go toward that that build characters into a fight and that that fights build build the story even further this this car chase sequence actually does that and you normally don't expect that from car chase sequences which is why i i i uh kind of reference the uh freaking car chase in ronin because it it is character driven and it drives the characters forward that's what this car chase sequence does Pun not intended. <laughs> Drive. Uh, but yeah, so at this point, the bull character uh, played by Wailam gets away. And now Haruyuki Sonata is out for revenge. So first he has to acquire a gun and some bullets. So that's where we get another one of these kind of quote unquote smaller action set pieces, which really is, I mean, it's just shorter in length, but still absolutely phenomenal. It's uh, He goes to a shady dealing on a ship with uh, the late, great Eddie Mayer, may he rest in peace. And when he goes to pay for the dirty, hairy gun, he's buying in bullets. It's just fake paper. And then so he has to fight his way through uh, these uh, gangsters that are selling him illegal weapons. And eventually through some amazing fists and kicks, mostly kicks, uh, he takes them all down, takes the gun and bullets. And then he uses Michelle Yeoh and Michael Wong as bait to draw out the killer. So he has them go to the California club, knowing that the killer will be following them. So the California club uh, is this like disco nightclub, which once again, a lot of very familiar Hong Kong faces in there from TVB, from Hong Kong movies. No, not like a Jackie Chan or Samuel Hung type, but people that you would recognize. And the California club uh, was an actual real club in that building, I guess. It was the California building, and that's mm-hmm. why it's called California uh, club and it's in the Long Kwai Fong area, so it makes sense. But it's a great setup for this uh, action scene, which is a phenomenal blend of gunplay, explosions, martial arts, slow motion. It's just so incredibly executed. The colors, like you mentioned, it's such a great scene of colors and breaking, and it, it takes a little bit from you know, classic action cinema that's already like the, the breaking of glass, like police story. And it does not feel like it's ripping it off. It's just really accentuating the action and the brutality of this whole sequence. Uh, and it, in actuality, when you see how many people get gunned down and killed in this scene, because the terrorist, when he does come out, uh, the bull character, he's got a freaking like machine gun, like an Uzi, and he's just blasting anybody. Anybody gets in his way, not even in his way, just anybody that he sees, he just shoots and kills. This is the kind of like sequence in real life. This would make international news, right? This would be like a terrorist attack. So what's what's very what's sort of special about the scene is, again, it goes to it's multi-layered. You talk about the casting and and you were talking about the a lot of them are people you might recognize from television. So right then and there, it, it, it feels 
the California club feels heartwarming. You got a, got a couple taking photos of each other asking, oh, can you take a photo? They're using a Polaroid camera. They're taking it, you know, taking all these different photos. Michael um, Wong orders a giant beer. Yes. And it still Wong. talks about like going out to dinner after that. And I'm like, oh, my God, dude, look at that huge beer. How would you? And I'm like, oh, I used to drink those all the yeah. time. Well, like, and the like, thing it's is, just what, this huge mug. And I'm like, yeah. man, how did I used to do that and eat and, and be totally fine? That one thing of beer would kill me now. Yeah. Well, but the the other thing I like about the uh, well, I like about the sequence it, it it does speak to the artistry of the director is it you know there is a lot of there are a lot of bullets that fly around there are a lot of uh, victims but it isn't a gory sequence it is emotionally horrifying yes and it is so well it's it's how it's shot and I think that comes down to uh, to to his background as a cinematographer, right? He, he shows facial reactions. It feels like you could, you could have seen this sequence in black and white shot in the, in the fifties, because at like with James Cagney, like in white heat, when he's yelling at the top of the, at the top of the world, when the, when the, the refinery is blowing up behind him, there's this sequence where it just like, he's, he's shooting the machine gun. You see the machine gun shooting, you see what it's hitting. And then you see his face and you see the reaction of the people. It's, it's, it's capturing capturing the emotions, and then and then as as AJ pointed out, you're seeing all the glass exploding, all the big beer steins exploding, <laughs> and it's just it's it's so well done. Even like there's a there's a point in the film where Michelle Yeoh is jumping, somebody grabs her foot, uh, she drops her gun, it goes across the floor. It feels like, and we talked about this film last week, uh, and uh, with the. The, the baby roundup? carriage going down the oh uh, the untouchables the untouchables which is also a reference to and I should have researched this beforehand battleship Potemkin thank you I was gonna say that yes honest yeah. oh it was it was gonna come up I swear <laughs> yeah 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 no but it, it there there are some really great classic edit moments in this sequence that just feels like classic cinema and and that's what pr- propels this sequence to be so memorable because you know we we can watch gory action films we can watch gory horror films and the first time around maybe you're looking away and the second time around maybe you're not watching as much this is this is high art in in a purely entertainment setting which is a really hard balance to to hit and they hit it with the sequence it's it's like imagine the incredible martial arts choreography of Samo or Jackie mixed with the balletic gunplay of John Woo, and that's what you're getting in this sequence. Just it's it's like the the shoot 'em up movies and the '80s martial arts films had a baby, and this is that scene. But and it's also just the slick camera work, the use of slow motion, even the final shot just stands out where. Spoiler alert, they kill the bull character, uh, but not after getting severely injured each. Like, Haruki's not a shot. Michelle Yeoh is stabbed in the shoulder with some glass. And then finally, Sonata-san gets his gun back, shoots and kills uh, the bull character. He falls down. And the last shot is just on Michelle Yeoh on the ground. Haruki Sonata standing there with his gun and he's just si- they're both silent. They say nothing and they're just looking and then it just fades to black. And there's a great use of sound in this film, whether it's the soundtrack, whether it's the sound effects are incredible, of course, from that era. Uh, but also sometimes the lack of sound, the lack of dialogue, the the silent beats and moments that truly bring across the drama without any overacting. I mean, yeah, there's dramatic acting moments, but there's also just some very powerful scenes that are done just through the expressions of our characters. So in this sequence, the obviously the bull character is killed. So now we're left with only one of the blood brothers uh, who doesn't, he technically doesn't have a name. Uh, in Frank James commentary, he said sometimes he's credited as Bandana. So we'll just call him Bandana, played by Ying Bai, great character actor uh, from Taiwan that had been around. He was in a lot of King Pu films, a lot of old school wuxia martial arts films. And so now he's the final, he's actually introduced in that sequence. Uh, we think he's just a patron of the bar. But uh, after that sequence, Hayuki Sonata is put on house arrest in the Japanese embassy. Michelle Yeoh is asked to take another vacation. So in other words, she's kind of put on leave. And Michael Wong is still trying to pursue Michelle Yeoh's character. And she gets frustrated with him, especially when he brings her some materials from the case that he managed to sneak out of her police station. 
uh, and she dismisses him. Just you leave me alone. There's no time for fun now. And so back in his apartment, uh, he makes the discovery when overlooking some of the evidence that Bandana is actually part of the gang. But before he can tell anyone, he calls Michelle. But before he can get out and tell anyone, Bandana is already at his apartment, kidnaps him, holds him hostage, uh, trying to draw out Michelle Yeoh's character uh, and literally using him as metaphorically and physically as bait. He has Michael Wong hanging from a rope from his ankle off of a building, trying to get Michelle Yeoh to go to the building, knowing that she's going to run in there to her death. Michael Wong sacrifices himself, unties the rope from his ankle and falls to his death in a great piece of stunt work. Also, first of all, Michael Wong is actually hanging there. Now, yes, some camera trickery, but also no, because you see some clear shots of from above down on him actually hanging there. Now, they probably had some extra wires through his pant leg, like really holding him there. But geez, Louise, that takes some cojones because I don't know if I would have done that. And, you know, there there may have been other stuff hidden off to the side, like a net that we couldn't see at that angle. But still, that's an incredible stunt to do for it, it, a relatively new actor at that time. It, it's so well shot. Uh, yes. And you, excuse me, <laughs> you, you probably feel some vertigo with him. Oh, yeah. And then like even the fall when the actual stuntman does the wow. fall is incredible because it's like they specifically the, wanted to say, hey, it's like they specifically said, we don't want the audience to think this is just a dummy falling. So just kick and move around a lot. So whoever the stunt guy in is, is like fl- flailing his arms. Amazing and stunt work. And, yeah. Ama- like, it's oh. the, some of the, some of the greatest stunt work uh, emerges from this era, this decade in Hong Kong film. Uh, but this is a standout fall. Yeah, it's good. And even just the way it's captured at the end, obviously they cut to the final like impact fall, but it's still just so well shot. Some great camera setup, like three cameras, slow motion through a glass, uh, uh, what would you call it? A greenhouse, pretty much like a flower shop greenhouse. So at this point, Michael is now dead. Uh, but of course, after the funeral, the bad guy steals his body. To, why not? Uh, yeah, why not? To draw back out Michelle Yeoh's character and Sonata Sun's character, you know, at his little rock quarry uh, hideout that he set up with explosives. So Hiroyuki Sonata shows up first. Uh, you know, his car cannot handle the bullets from. Uh, bandana's giant assault rifle machine gun I, i'm not very good with guns i don't know exactly what kind it is but like giant assault rifle and then right as you think he's about to meet his demise michelle yo shows up in an armored experimental take now this is the thing nobody seems to talk about and i was expecting frank jang to mention something in his commentary and he didn't how is this not the scene i mean tango and cash they had to have seen this scene first, right? And pretty much yeah. ripped it off. It's the exact same premise. She shows up to like, even though he only has a super small role, this guy like uh, almost like an armory guy in the police department, real brief. He's like, it's experimental. Make sure you bring it back in one piece. And like, you know, you see it's some <laughs> yeah. sort of big vehicle, but you don't really see it. Uh, whereas in Tango and Cash, they played up a little bit more, but it looks almost the exact same. Obviously, Tango and Cash has a way bigger budget and it looks way better. But it's a very similar premise. Okay, well, we're storming the bad guy's uh, uh, lair, right? And in that case, it's like a almost like a used car lot. Very similar settings, like a rock quarry uh, and a, you know, a car lot type thing, like construction area in the middle of nowhere. They have this big experimental tank that's like bulletproof and so forth. And that's how they're going to get in there. It just seems... Way too much of a coincidence. That well, listen, T- Tango and Cash essentially opens with a sequence pulled right from right, Police from Story. Police story. So, so yeah, why I mean, not? Why not rip? Not a rip or give a full homage to Hong Kong cinema and have an arc, have a homage at the beginning and homage at the end. And full credit to Tango and Cash because in terms of the actual vehicle and the actual stunt work of that, it's way better in Tango and Cash. Like that, her Michelle Yeoh's car kind of just looks like it's a van that had some stuff put on the outside because it can't really do much but so she's able to storm in there in her little experimental take tank excuse me uh save sonata sun take out uh the stilts that are holding up the bad guy's lair uh but then he manages to throw like a molotov cocktail which takes out the tank uh, and so she has to escape and then take him on in hand-to-hand combat which starts with a chainsaw fight and this would have been a couple years before uh, Tiger on the Beat with uh, Chai Yun-Fat, Conan Lee, and uh, Gordon Liu, where there's the famous chainsaw fight in that. So 
it starts off with a chainsaw fight between Michelle Yeoh and Bandana because Haruki's not as injured at this point. He can't help anymore. And then transitions into, so it's like an environment. They start with the environment. It starts with the chainsaw and then all these construction tools. And it's just very brutal and violent. And then it, vi- it finally transitions into just kind of hand to hand. And it's not the best or, hand to hand. Or foot to chin. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not necessarily the best sequence in the film in terms of that, but it's very fitting for that scene. They're both exhausted. They're both, and there's like three or four incredible shots in a row as Michelle Yeoh finishes them off, where she throws a few punches that are, it's it's a very interesting cut in execution where they're, it's almost like it breaks up the very uh, rhythmic style of the film, mm-hmm. which this film has a great rhythm to the choreography, like pa, 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 pa. Instead, it's like singular shot, singular shot, singular shot. And they use this lighting shining it's, through with the dust. It's very, it just to add to that impact, obvious baby powder. Like it's like a body shot, body shot, body shot with her punches, then cuts away to the kick that Gavin was talking about, this beautiful slow motion. I mean, it, that's kick. almost like her whole shin going across his yeah. uh, chin. I'd imagine they definitely had a, a padded shoe of sorts, but yeah. that's still, that's that stuntman took a very good kick to the head. And yes, indeed. Finally, you know, you, you think the villain's dead, but like a horror movie, he comes back again, uh, finally dies, but not before setting fire to the explosives that are rigged to the whole place. They manage to save uh, Michael's body and escape. And once again, at the end, there's no real conclusion with them. It's all just in silence. And we get some flashbacks to the characters we've lost, the use of music. And once again, this this great lack of dialogue between Haruki Sonata and Michelle Yeoh, which adds to the the drama of the film and this finale and everything they've gone through and it's sort of like now what and it's just finished it ends with them pretty much pulling that coffin and you know who knows what lies ahead for them now you know it's uh the film is made by hong kong professionals and you like we said there are a lot of familiar faces and names in behind the camera in front of the camera but with a real nice artistic sensitivity that knows when they can go silent, that knows when, you know, to, to cut away, to show a facial reaction. It's just, it's just so, it's such a special film uh, that like, like as we both, as we open this uh, podcast uh, or talking about this film, that sets, it's, it sets itself apart from the other films that were being released at that time, but also, is is fully reflective of what people were trying to do at that time yeah and anybody that hasn't seen this i i highly recommend that you buy the blu-ray box set in the line of duty 88 films uh because all those movies are incredible so i mean you might think oh well i gotta pay whatever it is for it totally worth it beautiful copies of it and you're getting three of my personal favorite Hong Kong martial arts films ever made. But then also, even in the line of duty, three is one that I didn't appreciate enough until rewatching it recently. And I'm just, that's also an incredible film. So find these films, purchase these films, watch these films. But Royal Warriors is an absolute incredible film. You can also watch it on the Criterion app right now, I think, if you have the Criterion app. So, because uh, they have a lot of Michelle Yeoh movies on there, but just truly special. Uh, if you're a fan of action, martial arts, anything, and if you haven't seen it, no shame. I don't like to shame people, but get on it, you know, watch that because, and if you're a up and coming stunt person or performer, or martial arts, watch it. Cause you're going to get a masterclass Indeed. in, uh, martial arts, filmmaking and action filmmaking from the 1980s, but we should start wrapping things up right now. So language corner. Language I corner. Something. I brought something. I, yeah, okay. I, was like, I was like, what are you talking <laughs> about? Haruyuki Sonata's in it. I thought you, you were going to bring some Japanese. If you uh, want to go silent like they did, we can do that. Yeah. You can play that game. So I'm trying to think of a word we haven't done yet. Like, I'm pretty sure I've done airplane before, a feiji, uh, uh, an airport, feiji tongue. So I thought a good one would just be warrior. Ooh. So quite simple. John Shur. John Shur. Yep. Z H A N S H I. Both. The downtone. John, John Shirt. AJ, Ni Shirt. John Shirt. Ah. Shit, shit. Uh, that was supposed to be two hands, but I'm holding my. There we go. Shit, shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So 
John, sure. Warrior. John, sure. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways to say royal, so we're not going to go into that. Sometimes it has to do with the color and so forth. But, yeah, this was uh, a great watch, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, once again, apologies about the late release last week and also the YouTube video. I When you put it up at the highest video quality, it literally took me three or four days, so it just came out, I think, yesterday. So... I'm going to get on it ASAP and try to get it out sooner. We should be released on Wednesday for audio, back to normal this week, and then hopefully by Friday once again for video. And then eventually once we, uh, I'm starting a new job soon. And so once we get in the swing of that, we'll be able to hopefully coincide the video and the audio drop on the same day. But otherwise, this has been fun. I had a great time. I had a great time as well. Thanks, my man. Take care.